Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So what are we talking about today? So we are talking about, this is the first in a special two-part episode. We're going to talk about a set of models that predict the outcome of drug approvals. So when you are trying a pharmaceutical company who's trying to get a new medicine on the market, there's this approval process that you have to go through. It's very high risk, and it tends to also be often high reward. And so if you can predict what the outcome of that process will be, then that can have a lot of interesting implications for your business if you're one of these pharmaceutical companies. Oh, interesting. Okay. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So the name of this paper is uh, Machine Learning with Statistical Imputation for Predicting Drug Approvals. Uh, And this is a paper that it's mostly talking about data science here, but it's it's actually coming out of the MIT Sloan Business School. So that gives you a little bit of an idea. We're sort of at this interesting intersection of the science about, you know, how these drug trials are actually being run and what are they testing and the medicines and all this kind of stuff. Um, But it has some pretty big business implications. Oh, interesting. mm -hmm. Yeah, because usually these don't come out of uh, business contexts. Yeah, or if they do, it's because data scientists are talking about the data science that they had to put into building the model. And I don't know, very often the, the business context tends to be sort of secondary. But And don't get me wrong, this is a paper, we'll have a link to it on lineardigressions.com. Um, this is a paper that's got some really solid data science and statistics in it that we will definitely unpack a little bit today. But it has maybe more than our average topic like a pretty direct tie to, yeah, business outcomes. Okay. So uh, you were saying this is looking into predicting the outcome of drugs going through this process. And the implication is that if you're a drug company, you want to be able to know if what you're doing will likely, uh, I guess, yield you getting through the process. And if not, then you can adjust what you're doing. Well, maybe you can adjust what you're doing, or maybe you just make a slightly different set of bets about which drugs you're going to be prioritizing because there's a limited set of resources that you have. Yeah, but it's a little bit tough. This is a a machine learning type approach. This isn't trying to do more classical causal inference type techniques. So while there's analysis of the features that make a drug more likely to succeed or or not, like what are the attributes of that trial that make it more likely to, to proceed to approval or not? Um, it doesn't necessarily take a stand on whether those features are causing it to be approved or what's the direction of causality. So let me just give a quick example here. Uh, one of the features is predictive of an eventual success of a drug trial is whether it has a lead uh, investigator or like a lead scientist who's had a number of successful trials before. Now, maybe they have successful drug trials in the past because they're a really good scientist and they're able to design experiments that no matter what the experiment is, this person just makes it more likely to succeed by virtue of their brilliance. Or maybe it's a person who's good at figuring out what's going to likely to succeed anyway and just hopping on board those, which is not a, you know, not anything wrong with that. But in that case, if you have a drug that doesn't look like it's very likely to succeed and you're trying to like boost its odds by bringing in some kind of 
fancy pants lead experimentalist uh, that might maybe not you're work. not. Yeah, it might not work. So anyway, um, this is an important point, I think, like that we're just trying to predict which ones are going to proceed to approval. But the whole idea of understanding what is causing them to be approved and maybe making tweaks to the system to increase the likelihood of them being approved, that is not what we are trying to do here. Got it. Okay. So causality is not as important as just predicting the outcome based on a certain set of inputs. That makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, causality is important, don't get me wrong, but it's just oh, not yeah. something that, that you can get, yeah, with, with this technique. So the technique here in particular is using commercial data sets. So there's companies that compile information about drug trials, and then usually for a fee, you can get access to this data. And so there's uh, maybe about a little bit more than 8,000 different trials that are in this data set. Uh, with information about whether the drug was eventually approved or not for for drugs that got sort of all the way through the process. And with that, trying out a bunch of different machine learning techniques to predict for in like cross-validation samples or for the drugs that are still in the pipeline that haven't been approved or not yet, whether they're going to be approved or not. Okay, so I think it might be useful um, being the person who doesn't know any about anything about this topic to take a step back and talk about just like how how does this process even work like how do drug approvals work do you yeah. just submit a ticket with a bunch of information about your drugs and then it's approved or denied or are there multiple stages or and how long does it take like maybe some yeah. of that stuff would be good to know yeah totally so drug approvals usually proceed in three major stages they're called phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. And then at the Original, end of a phase, yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the end of a, yeah, at the end of phase three, there's these big application packets that get assembled that summarize all of the information about that drug, and then that gets submitted to the FDA, and then the FDA approves it or doesn't approve it, perhaps within. Not It's not a short time period, but it's usually not a tremendously long time period, like maybe on the order of a year or so. It, sometimes they fast track certain drugs. Sometimes I th- I'm mm. sure other ones take longer, but that gives you a rough idea. But that's just at the end of the process. So moving from phase one through phase three, that can take years sometimes. So at phase one, this is the earliest stage. These are drugs that are very likely not to succeed because there's just a lot of them and it's they're not well understood they're not well known it's these are like the bleeding edge what they're usually trying to do in phase one is make sure that the drug is generally safe to use or that they understand enough what any side effects are or complications um, interactions with other medicines just trying to understand if it's safe to use and then in phase two and phase three what you're assessing a little bit more is is this drug good at treating the thing that you're trying to treat with it? So in that case, the standard protocol is that you're doing randomized controlled trials. So you have a bunch of patients who have the disease that you're trying to treat. You're putting them into, randomly assigning them to get either the new drug that you're, um, that you're testing or usually some kind of standard of care, whether depending on the drug, sometimes that's a placebo, sometimes that's the existing therapeutic options. Um, so it can depend a little bit. 
And then at the end of that process, you're doing uh, kind of the standard, we talk about it a lot in the context of A-B tests, but it's the same statistic. So you have these two groups that have gotten two different treatment options, and then you try to understand if there are systematically different, better, worse outcomes between the two groups. And on the basis of that, that's kind of the, the foundation of the approval when they go to the FDA to say, hey, can you approve this drug to be prescribed for this application. All right. And do you know, like, who is involved in the different parts of uh, these processes? Like, is this an all-hands-on-deck process for all of it? Or do you have research and in- researchers involved from the beginning to the end? Or um, That's a good question. I mean, I imagine that it depends a lot on the particulars of the trial um, and kind of what what kind of infrastructure you need to have to get enough people into these trials. So that's one of the things that's hardest about running these experiments is that, especially for diseases that are not particularly common, it can take a long time to accrue patients into the trial because you need to have enough people that you can claim statistical significance around whatever it is that you find. Like if you're only able to treat your five people with your new therapy, then it might be really hard to tell what effect it's having. So, but that can take a really long time because patients are generally, they're spread out all over the country. Maybe their doctors know about these trials. Maybe they don't. Um, Sometimes it can be hard to figure out if you qualify for these trials. Very often the trials have, um, you know, rules about what kinds of patients they're willing to accept or not. So that can make it actually really hard and, and can take a really long time. And that's one of the determining factors overall in the likelihood of a of a trial being successful is is it able to accrue a healthy statistical size you know quickly enough that it can be cost effective okay so that all makes sense so you're trying then to get to kind of use this data set that you've bought about all of these different drugs and drug trials and and how they all did and what they did throughout these this process and you're trying to make that predictive, build a model that's predictive. What kind of issues do you run into uh, either from the data set or just from this general type of, uh, of machine learning problem? Yeah, good question. So I should add that I'm not sure if the researchers in this case had to buy the data or if because they were working as academics, they were able to get you know, licensed to it you know, kind of pro bono. But that's an aside. Generally, if you were, say, a pharmaceutical company who wanted to be working with this data, you would have to pay for it. Um, yeah, so I mentioned at the at the top that the title of the paper is Machine Learning with Statistical Imputation for Predicting Drug Approvals. So we've talked a little okay, bit wait, right now. What does imputation yeah, mean? Yeah, imputation is one of the ways that you deal with missing data. So this is a problem oh, where, okay. yeah, where there's a lot of missing data for lots of reasons. And that's a problem if you're going to try to just shove this data set into machine learning methods, because generally machine learning methods, they don't do well with missing data. And some of them fail elegantly, and some of them, you know, the model will crash completely if you feed in missing data. And so that was one of the major lifts of the paper, was trying to understand what is the structure of the missing data, and how do we think about the right way to impute reasonable values in for that missing data in a way that doesn't bias our algorithms. Oh, I see. So 
it's not as much about writing an algorithm that can just work with missing data. It's about synthesizing data in a way that doesn't bias the algorithm that you end up making. Yeah. And I think that that's actually pretty typical. Um, uh-huh. It's in my, in my experience, if you have a off the shelf algorithm that doesn't deal super well with missing data and you have a missing data problem, very often what data scientists will try to do is fill in the missing data somehow rather than hack their way around whatever the decision tree implementation or whatever algorithm it is that you're using. But like you said, you have to be really careful about this. So there's a concept that I'm not sure we've ever talked about here, but it's actually really important for missing data. This comes up a lot in statistics, but I think machine learning people would would do well to think about this too. So there's three different terms that statisticians use when they talk about missing data. They talk about data that's missing at random, data that's missing not at random, and data that's missing completely at random. And these are very different ideas and they have different implications for how you fill in the data. At random. And completely at random. Completely at random. Sound the same, just one is just more clearly stated. (laughs) Yeah, so, so, okay, not at, uh-huh. maybe we'll start with not at random because that's the clearest. Well, actually, I think that one's the hardest. Let me start with completely really? at random. Okay. Yeah, I, I think so. So let's go from uh, kind of the most straightforward to least straightforward. So completely at random means that there's no pattern whatsoever to the data that's missing. Like imagine if just randomly 50% of the data, you know, you, you shuffle, uh, you shuffle your data your stack of papers, you put half the papers into one box, you put half the papers into the other box, and then one of the boxes falls off the back of the truck, right? There's nothing, there was no particular reason that any particular case is is missing in that scenario, because it was just based on randomly whether it went into box A or box B. So you have every reason to think in this case that while it's a shame that you lost all of your data in box B, it probably had all the same properties as in box A. So it's just completely by statistical or probabilistic chance that you're missing this data. That's completely at random. Okay. Okay. So So it's not just that the data that you're missing is random values, but it's that the, the pieces of data that you are missing are kind of chosen at random. Yeah, that there's no... Uh, there's no kind of driving process that's causing certain cases to be more likely to be missing or not. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's completely random. And that's sort of the easiest one to deal with because you don't have to, you don't have to worry as much that the data that you are seeing is somehow different than the whole population that you're trying to study. So missing at random then starts to relax that. It says maybe there is some relationship between the thing I'm interested in studying and the missing values that are present in my data set. So let me give you an example from the paper. So this paper is trying to predict two different outcomes of interest, whether a drug will go from phase two to approved and whether it goes from phase three to approved. In phase two trials that are successful in the long run, uh, have they have some missing data about the medium. So the medium of the drug, I'm, I'm not an expert here, but I, I think that means like, is it a pill or is it a injection or, you know, a mm-hmm. liquid or whatever? Okay, so 
there's some missing data about the medium for drugs that are eventually successful, but for drugs that are failures in the long run, much, much more likely to have missing data about the medium. Oh, interesting. And this okay, pattern, so, yeah, this pattern also holds huh. for phase three. So you're like, okay, the thing that I'm interested in predicting, whether this thing gets approved, there is a relationship between whether one of my predictors is missing values or not and that outcome of interest. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And you don't want your algorithm to say, oh, yeah, the, 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 um, records the drug records that have less data tend to pass less frequently that's not actually a real thing but it is a pattern in your data well i mean it kind of could be a real thing but it it starts to get really tricky here right because it's Mm -hmm. like well maybe it's totally foreseeable for example that you don't keep the records quite as clean and orderly for things that are eventual failures because you know that they're going to fail and so you're like all right i'm not going to be super rigorous about this because I know that this is just going to go back on the shelf anyway. Whereas if I'm optimistic about it succeeding, then I'm going to keep much better notes because I have to turn all that stuff into the FDA. So you have to really understand the relationship between those two variables. But the thing I should add here is that once you understand that relationship, you do have the data that you need in the data set to predict or understand which data is missing. So another way to say this is that missing at random, I'm now quoting directly from the paper, missing at random applies when the missingness in the data can be fully accounted for by the observed variables. So I have this data that's missing, but I have enough context clues from the other things that I'm observing that I can predict whether it's going to be missing or not that there's you know there might be this complicated relationship but it's something that's captured fully in my data set and so i can take statistical pains to say use other data points to fill in that missingness in an informed way or i can control for it or something like that this is different from missing not at random and missing not at random is the trickiest one to deal with missing not at random is when there is a pattern to the missingness So it's the same kind of general idea as missing at random, but you don't have other variables in your data set that allow you to predict or understand what the patterns of missingness are. So in missing at random, you're like, okay, I know that there's some kind of pattern to my missing data, but I can figure out what that pattern is from all the other data that I have. Missing not at random says there is a pattern to the missingness, but I am missing some of the information to figure out what that relationship is. And mm-hmm. so I might be I might be on shaky ground in terms of trying to understand or use these variables to predict some outcome that I'm interested in because I don't maybe totally understand like the relationship between the data that I'm looking at and the thing that I'm trying to describe with it. If this feels kind of squishy and uncomfortable, that's because it. I think it is fairly squishy and uncomfortable, at least for me as a as a person mm. who's not a statistician by background. But it's one of the it's some of the harder things that statisticians and data scientists and these types of folks have have to deal with is understanding why some of their data is missing and if that is going to create biases or or potential problems with biases in their data set when they go to analyze it. Okay, so there are three kinds of missing data. These researchers probably have a bunch of missing data. 
some of it is probably uh, oh, I can't remember all three of the the names, but some of it is the first, some of it is the second, some of it is the third. Uh, what do you do in that situation? Well, so they actually take some pains to try to figure out exactly which flavor of missingness they have because that that has a big impact on the approach that they take. Mm. And so they're, for various reasons that I think um, rely somewhat more on subject matter domain expertise than I have, they believe that the pattern of missingness is mostly missing at random. So that means that they can generally try to use... So missing at random, remember, means that there there is a pattern to the missingness, but it's a pattern that's fully described by all of the other data that you have. So what they do is they use all the other data that they have to make predictions about the missing values. So that's the statistical imputation in the title of the paper, is trying out a few different techniques for filling in the missing data with values that are probably pretty close to hopefully usually what was what might have would have been written down if someone had been a little bit more careful with the record keeping or what have you and then using those imputed values in all the different algorithms that they try at that point you have something that looks like a fully formed and not filled with missing data data set that you can just put into fairly standard fairly standard algorithms like uh, gradient boosted trees, um, neural nets, penalized logistic regression, these kinds of things. And then what they try to do at the end is, of course, predict clinical trial success. So they have about 6,344 examples of drugs in phase two, 1,810 in phase three, and they're trying to predict for each of those cases how many of them eventually get through to, to final approval. Um, It's a little bit of an imbalanced class problem from phase two to approval has about an 86% failure rate. And from phase three to approval has um, 60% failure rate, if I'm not mistaken. So especially in phase two, I think they have enough data that they don't need to rebalance the classes too much, but you can tell that there's more more likely to have these things end in failure than in success. Mm -hmm. But... Anyway, the the point I was trying to make, just to return to it, is that, yeah, once the statistical imputation is theoretically validated and argued for and then actually done, then the rest of the the rest of the analysis can proceed according to fairly standard data science techniques. And they end up with models that sound like they're pretty good and with AUCs of 0.78 for phase two to approval and 0.81 for phase three to approval. Um, I don't know exactly know how this translates into like accuracy uh, or anything like that, but those sound like pretty decent models to me. Nice. So that was a pretty good introduction, but I have more questions. Oh no, what should I do? Uh, Well, yeah, me too. So I'm really excited (laughs) about this paper because I'm actually going to get a chance um, in our next episode, I'll be talking with the author one of the authors um, who, like I said, is a business school professor, but with an interest in using data science to solve business problems such as this one. So in that episode, we'll be talking a lot more, I assume, I haven't I haven't recorded it yet, but I'm excited to ask him more about some of this missingness, about you know how he thinks about working with these kinds of kinds of data sets, all kinds of interesting things. I think it'll be a really fun discussion. So, but it'll all make 
I think probably a fair bit more sense knowing some of this background stuff about the research that he did and just generally how this stuff works. So I'm really excited about that. And that will be in our next episode. Uh, So tune in next week and we will have a chance to go much deeper than this, which I'm really excited about. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.